It's God's word. After I had given the deed of purchase to Baruch, the son of Neriah, I prayed to the Lord, saying, Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. You show steadfast love to thousands, but you repay the guilt of fathers to their children after them. O great and mighty God, whose name is the Lord of hosts, great in counsel and mighty in deed, whose eyes are open to all the ways of the children of man, rewarding each each one according to his ways and according to the fruit of his deeds. You have shown signs and wonders in the land of Egypt and to this day in Israel and among all mankind and have made a name for yourself as at this day. You brought your people Israel out of the land of Egypt with signs and wonders, with a strong hand and and outstretched arm and with great terror. And you gave them this land, which you swore to their fathers to give them, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they entered and took possession of it, but they did not obey your voice or walk in your law. They did nothing of all that all you commanded them to do. Therefore, you have made all this disaster come upon them. Behold, the siege mounds have come up to the city to take it. And because of sword and famine and pestilence, The city is given into the hands of the Chaldeans who are fighting against it. What you spoke has come to pass, and behold, you see it. Yet you, O Lord God, have said to me, buy the field for money and get witnesses. Though the city is given into the hands of the Chaldeans. We read that far in God's words. We pick up our story after God told Jeremiah to buy a field in an area that was about to be taken over by an enemy army. Buying this field was an action of bold faith, and yet an action, humanly speaking, of foolishness in terms of business sense, in terms of the way that anyone would advise Jeremiah whether or not to buy the field. After the purchase, Jeremiah became perplexed. We could say he had second thoughts. Have you ever second-guessed yourself after making a decision that you were sure that God was leading you in? Did this purchase mean that God had changed his mind about the destruction of the city? Jeremiah just spent 40 years preaching that if they didn't repent, God would destroy the city. And now God is saying to buy a field in that city that's to be destroyed and imminently so. Would God now prevent the city from falling to the hands of the enemy. Jeremiah went ahead and bought the field. He already bought the field. But now he's struggling in prayer to understand the meaning of God's instruction. Why buy the field? So this passage is helpful for us. Think about it as you walk through life. We pray about our decisions, don't we? Enrolling in a class, enrolling in a school, marrying this person, taking this job, retiring from this job, serving in that role, buying that car, having that surgery. Don't we pray about our decisions, big and small? And then after we make a decision, after we take an action, do we ever second guess? And in the wonderful providence of God, we have this passage to help us as God teaches us how to pray by expressing both our faith and our confusion. So first, we study verses 16 through 19, and we'll see this point that we are to remember the power of God, the creator and sustainer, as we pray. So verse 16 tells us after the purchase of the field, Jeremiah prayed. In verse 17, it's clear that Jeremiah believed in God's power. 
that God would be able to either cause or prevent the sack of Jerusalem in the following exile. One glance at the sky reminded Jeremiah that nothing is too difficult for God. If you take a drone and you put it over the city where Jeremiah is praying, you would see Babylonians surrounding it, right? Literally surrounding the entire city. And yet Jeremiah takes one look at the sky and he says, you could prevent this. Like that, God could prevent Jerusalem from falling. Is that what you meant for me to buy a field here? Do you see the confusion? This is where Jeremiah finds himself and he comes to God in prayer. The same God who created that sun, who keeps that sun on time and on track. It never varies. It rises. It sets. That same God can do anything. Jeremiah believed in the power of God. Would this God cause Jerusalem to stand or fall? Verse 18, Jeremiah knew that God showed love not just to one prophet who bought one field so that he's going to stand there by himself in a field and the rest of it will be destroyed. He understands as he puts it in verse 18 that God showed love to thousands. A reference, of course, back again to God's previous redemptive work and even into the Ten Commandments that we've read today. This same God applies justice to the guilty. So the creator and sustainer of his creation is the same God who doles out justice for those who do wrong. So which would God do in this case? We've established clearly in all the previous chapters that we have sinners in this city. God has a beef with them. He sent Jeremiah to speak with them about that. He's warning and warning them and now the Babylonian army is surrounding the city threatening them with that exile, will God cause the sinners in this city to experience God's love or God's justice? Where is this going? Verse 19, Jeremiah reminded himself that God has enough wisdom to conduct all of these operations since God is great in counsel. God has enough power to oversee everything because he's, as we see in verse 19, mighty indeed. God observes enough to become fully informed about who receives justice because, as Jeremiah correctly acknowledged next in prayer in verse 19, God's eyes are open, listen, to all the ways of the children of man. Nothing's lost on God. Jeremiah further acknowledged in verse 19 that after God collects his data about all the ways of man, that God is the one who, quote, is rewarding each one according to his ways and according to the fruit of his deeds, end quote. Jeremiah knew God is a God of love, and yet God is a God of justice. So Jeremiah had preached God's message of doom, and yet Jeremiah had obediently bought a field on the scene of doom. Where is this going? You feel the tension in Jeremiah's prayer? You feel his perplexity? His confusion, he's perplexed. So what does he do? He comes to God in prayer. You ever get perplexed? This is the first step. Come to God with it in prayer. What did God intend to do in this case? We remember the power of God. He could do either. We move to our second point. Remember the past actions of God. Let's review the kind of behavior that we could expect from God by looking at what God has done in the past. Let's review God's historical relationships with his people. 
Verse 20, Jeremiah's quandary continued, so Jeremiah kept praying what he did know. Here's what I know. He talked with God about God's love. I know your love. I've seen it. We hear the redemptive story of God's covenant love. God's love was not to be guided solely by what the people deserved, but rather by the generous mercy of God. That's what Jeremiah knows. How could God be utterly faithful to his covenant, faithful to his people, and at the same time still be a God who is exacting and severe when they break his covenant by their sin? How could God be both? Which direction is this going? Jeremiah observed in prayer that God created the world and did not take his hands off the world after he created the world, but remains very present and very active in his world. Active doing what? In addition to upholding the laws of gravity that he created, in addition to causing your heart to beat and your eyes to blink, God is very active in fulfilling his covenant for his people. So Jeremiah recited the core, classic memories of the people of God, that they completely rejoiced in the good gifts that God had given to them in the past. That those gifts were not warranted by the behavior of the people. So Jeremiah starts to list these out in his prayer, as if he's cataloging an inventory of the past actions of God to redeem. He prayed over the famous story when God in the past brought his people out of captivity in a foreign country called Egypt, what we call the Exodus. Notice in verse 20 that Jeremiah prayed two phrases so that two times he tied God's previous actions at the Exodus with God's actions ever since, including down to this moment. You see the relevance of bringing up the Exodus and tying it to this moment? So the two phrases in verse 20 are, quote, to this day, end quote, end quote, as at this day, end quote. Do you see them in verse 20? Jeremiah is praying this in order to make the point to himself and to God that God had made a name for himself to behave in the past in just such a way. What was that way? What was God famous for? He's famous for showing signs and wonders, verse 20. He has a habit of bringing people out of danger, his people, verse 21. He has a reputation for showing his power when rescuing his people, verse 21. He's well known for giving his people the blessing of safety and security in the gift of land, verse 22. Stop. Listen. Land. Isn't the field that Jeremiah bought a piece of land? Do you see the relevance of his prayer? A huge theme in God's past dealings with his people is giving them land. So Jeremiah's prayer about his purchase of a field of land is right on target. Look again at verse 22. And he prays to God, you gave them this land, this land, which you swore to their fathers to give them, a land flowing with milk and honey. Maybe you've ever been curious. The phrase flowing with milk and honey appears often in the first five books of the Bible, but only four times outside of the Pentateuch, only four times outside of the book of Moses. This is one of them. The phrase is a shorthand way to describe the blessings of the covenant. It's like us saying, our city needs to hear the crack of the bat and the roar of the crowd in October. It's a poetic way to refer to our baseball hopes. The only way you hear the crack of bat and roar of crowd in October is if the Brewers keep winning and advance to the championship game. So it's a poetic way of saying we want our Brewers to go all the way. 
in a similar way, when Jeremiah included in his prayer that ancient phrase about a land, quote, flowing with milk and honey, end quote, it's a reference to good soil in the field he just purchased, as well as the rest of the fields. The only way, you see, for milk to be present was to have soil good enough to produce green grass and enough of it for the cows to graze, for the cows and goats to give milk. So here Jeremiah is praying through the famous history of the actions of God, even the land, and the land flowing with milk and honey, he reminds God and reminds himself. But Jeremiah remains perplexed. Is that, therefore, the solid answer about what God is going to do in this case? God would be able to prevent his people from this enemy attack, even though they're stacked around the city at this moment. But the God who, quote, sees the ways of people, end quote, has seen that his people are ungrateful, his people are disobedient. The God of creation, the God of redemption, is also the God of justice. And he made a covenant and made it clear in that covenant that they were supposed to obey. And they didn't obey, breach of contract. What must happen to God's people when they rebel and break his covenant? Is he obligated to to rescue them? Would he rescue them in this case just because we saw him rescue in the past? You see why Jeremiah is praying in confusion? Our third point, present to God your sin, your predicament, your confusion. Verse 23, Jeremiah knew that God's people had sinned. So Jeremiah prayed that fact back to God in full. Listen to the second half of verse 23. They did not obey your voice or walk in your law. They did nothing of all you commanded them to do. Therefore, you have made all this disaster come upon them. You feel, perhaps in my sermon, what you see in the text. There's tension here in in Jeremiah's presentation of God. God is more than powerful enough to prevent the exile, yet there's a strong rationale for God to go ahead with the exile as has been fully warned. So in effect, Jeremiah is praying the language here of a covenant lawsuit. If you've never heard of it, a covenant lawsuit, briefly, it means that God is accusing his people of sinning and breaking the covenant. And God is officially, in court as it were, suing his people for breach of contract. It's a covenant lawsuit. The clear verdict is guilty, Jeremiah acknowledges that in his prayer. The only thing that remained unresolved is this. What will be the sentence, O God, great judge? Will you show mercy in this case or will you bring down justice? In Jeremiah's prayer, we read Jeremiah's assumption based on the enemy surrounding the city currently, therefore you have made all this disaster come upon them. It's not just that the attack will be coming, The fact that the Babylonian army is surrounding the city is already having an effect, which he mentions here, sword, famine, and pestilence in verse 24. They can't get supplies. The critters are starting. The famine is starting. They're already doing damage by surrounding the city, you see. God the judge seems poised to go the next step and punish the guilty further. The whole prayer of Jeremiah, starting at verse 17, pushing towards verse 25, is this big quandary. Given the judgment that's nearby, just outside the walls of Jerusalem, why did God tell a prophet to buy this field? 
the circumstances called for Jeremiah, no, do not buy the field. But God instructed Jeremiah, go ahead, yes, do buy the field. What's up with that? The height of Jeremiah's question is in verse 25. I'll read it out to you again as Jeremiah prayed it out. Yet you, O Lord God, have said to me, buy the field for money and get witnesses, though the city is given into the hands of the Chaldeans. The question here that Jeremiah is wrestling out in prayer is, how can there be a blessed future in that field in the center of a destroyed city? Which character trait will God show and prevail? His love or his justice? If he had to guess, he says it looks like judgment all the way. Sin of man plus holiness of God equals judgment of God. Destruction. It all lines up. It all makes sense. Except for this nagging new purchase of this new field. This does not square. You got me confused, O Lord. You see it? God takes questions such as Jeremiah brings to God. God takes perplexing issues such as you and I bring to God. And he has a way of shaping them out into a pattern that suddenly makes different sense to us. We have to look ahead to his answer in verse 27. It's past our text, I realize. There's the answer. If you look ahead, God said, is anything too hard for me? Does that sound familiar? Jeremiah had prayed that. Now God puts it back to him as a question. God continues in verse 27, Therefore, in verse 28, I'm giving this city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall capture it. There's your answer. Now we can see how that squares with God's justice, God's holiness. But inquiring minds like Jeremiah's want to know, Could I still be perplexed? Because how does it square with your love? How does it square with your new covenant love? How does it square with your mercy? How does it square with what you just told me to preach? In Jeremiah 31, forgiveness is promised. So later in verse 37, jump down to now verse 37, God would say to Jeremiah, I will gather the people back. And again he writes, I will bring them back to this place and I will make them dwell in safety. God is not stopped by our sin. God is not controlled by the people's actions of disobedience. God, who keeps his covenant, is not controlled by the breakers of the covenant on the other end. God remains free to exercise his love. God can give fresh love. God can give a fresh covenant, a new covenant, and he can uphold that covenant despite the sin of his people. Here's the clear answer to Jeremiah. The new covenant salvation comes only in the future when God will send his son to remove the sins of God's people at the cross when Jesus takes up his place on the other end of the covenant so that God is on God's end of the covenant and God is on man's end of the covenant and then it becomes unbreakable despite the sin of the people. Is that the answer you're looking for, Jeremiah? It's called the gospel. It's a clear answer to Jeremiah. As for the ancient city, surrounded by Babylonians, Jerusalem will fall. But no need to worry. With the power of the creator God, with the power of the sustainer God, with the power of the redeemer God, Jerusalem can rise from the dead. Jerusalem can be restored again in 70 years. Who says? God says. Set your clock by it. 
God's answer to Jeremiah is the centrality of his covenant, the centrality of his covenant being fulfilled by the coming Messiah who will come to that city, Jerusalem, and be destroyed in that city. The fall of Jerusalem and the exile will be followed by restoration. The purchase of the field was meant to show this foundational principle of God's dealings with man. Judgment is necessary, followed by mercy. This is what gives hope to Jeremiah. This is what gives hope to his readers, those who will go into exile. It's what gives hope to all those since then until the days of Christ. It's what gives us hope in Christ Jesus himself. There's an end to God's judgment, but no end to God's mercy. The end of God's judgment for his people is when Jesus was fully put to death upon that cross and buried. No end to his mercy when Jesus rose again. The cross is followed by resurrection. The consequences for sin are followed by undeserved blessings. So if you're outside of that cross, there's no end to his judgment. But if you're covered by that cross, there's an end to the judgment and no end to his mercy. See, it's only when we place all of our praying, all of Jeremiah's ancient perplexed praying and all of our modern perplexed praying in the light of the cross of Christ that we understand the depths of God's dealings with us. Whatever was perplexing to Jeremiah may perplex us until we come to the cross. That the wrath of God was fully exercised in judgment against Christ Jesus, who was wearing our sins and therefore received the violent wickedness of human enemies, even soldiers. However, at the very same moment at that cross, the covenant of love of God was simultaneously poured out in triumph of redemption. Through the resurrection of Christ then, God brought not only a restoration of agriculture to one ancient field owned by a kinsman redeemer named Jeremiah, but that he then became representative of the first fruits of God's redemption by the kinsman redeemer Jesus of all of his people and even all the whole new creation. Romans 8, 21, it's in Christ the Redeemer that as Paul writes, the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, Romans 8, 21 to 23. The gospel is the answer Jeremiah was seeking in confusion in his prayer. There's an end to God's judgment for his people and there's no end to his mercy in Christ Jesus. So God teaches us how to pray by expressing both our faith and our confusion. We saw how we remember God and his power in prayer. We remember his past actions as redeemer in our prayer and then we present to God, our sin, our predicament, our confusion. So I have two application points to us along those lines. Number one, application point number one, we can be confident to present our souls and our sins to God in prayer. We can be confident to present our souls and our sins to God in prayer. You ever ask yourself this after you've done something wrong? Will the holy, holy Holy God of justice, show me mercy in this. 
Will God be merciful to me, a sinner? Isn't that the most important question? The answer is yes. That Jeremiah presented the sin of the people of God because it was true, but also because God is a God of covenant love and he dealt with his justice later and elsewhere at the cross for his own son. What gave Jeremiah added confidence? The field. What gives the New Testament Christian like you added confidence? The Spirit. Think about what Spirit dwells in you. The field that Jeremiah bought ensured that God had future purpose for his people in Jerusalem. The field for Jeremiah is the Spirit for us Christians. The ownership of the field inside a war zone guaranteed that God would redeem. Just as the Spirit inside of sinners guarantees that God will redeem and forgive us. Since God has put his Holy Spirit inside of us, we can be sure that he will not utterly destroy us. The people would go into exile, but then be brought back home in restoration. Jesus died for our sins, but rose again for our permanent acceptance by God. The Christian may enter sin, but be redeemed and restored. How do we know? Because the field was bought by Jeremiah. So we knew God would raise his people back from exile. And Jesus was the son of God, so we know as he is buried, he would be raised again from the dead. Because the Spirit of God lives in us as the children of God, we know that God will redeem us. Paul writes this out, Romans 8, 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Or Paul again in Ephesians 1, 14. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Ephesians 1, 14. Or our written standard For our beliefs, the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 14, about faith, section 1, reads this way, The grace of faith, whereby the elect are enabled to believe to the saving of their souls, listen, is the work of the Spirit of Christ in their hearts. It teaches us something about our prayers to God while confused. Don't be confused about presenting your sins to a holy God. Number one, he knew them anyway. Number two, he's the God of covenant love. So we begin our prayers with repentance. Present your sin to God in prayer. We can be confident to present our souls and our sins to God in prayer. That's application number one. I only have one more. Number two, present your predicament to God and hope for the impossible. Present your predicament to God and hope for the impossible. How should we pray when we're perplexed? When we're distressed? I prayed about entering that school. I prayed about taking that job. I I prayed about entering that relationship. And now look at my predicament. I thought for sure God had led me in that. Isn't that the predicament of Jeremiah? You told me to buy this field. And now look, it's going to be destroyed. We have to think beyond our ability to explore what could happen. We enter the divine and the realm of what only God can see and think and do. God tells us nothing is impossible with God, Luke 1.37. We hope for the impossible. Jeremiah is saying, wait a minute, how can this field be used? Because a God who could allow the enemy to destroy it could restore it again. 
Wait, how could Jesus be destroyed? What hope do we have then, the disciples could ask? Because God could raise him from the dead and give him everlasting life and power to redeem us all. Look how Jeremiah's prayer began in verse 17 with the word ah, A-H. What word is that? It's even harder in Hebrew. It's a grunt. You ever begin a prayer with a grunt? You ever end a prayer with a grunt? You ever just stop a prayer with a grunt? Not even a word. This is a groan. Four times in the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah begins his prayer this way, with whatever this grunt or word is. Later, the Apostle Paul sheds light on this for us when he wrote to describe the role of the Spirit in our inability to find the words when we're trying to pray for the impossible. It's so unprecedented. We don't have maps. We don't have examples from others for how to pray in this predicament. Paul writes in Romans 8, 26, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Romans 8, 26 and 27. So this is what gives us the courage to present our predicament to God and hope for the impossible and try to ask for the impossible. How do you phrase that? You can't even imagine what we're asking for. See? My best illustration of how to bring our impossible predicament to God, I'm borrowing from Pastor Paul Tripp, whose daughter, Nicole, was in an absolutely terrible car accident. It's so gruesome, I won't take a moment to describe to you, but when Pastor Tripp reached the hospital and connected with her and found her, her injuries were so severe that her life was in jeopardy. Pastor Tripp was so undone with emotion and concern, he literally prayed like this, God, Nicole, God, Nicole, this is an internationally known pastor, author, and teacher who's excellent with words. He had no verb. He didn't have a way to say what he's asking. He's presenting his predicament to God with a Jeremiah like, ah, with a spirit-led groan. I love that story because I can tell you that the rest of the story is God preserved Nicole's life. How do you pray for your predicament to God? Let's say you're in school. You could pray, Lord God, I'm starting to feel a rising anxiety about this test. Remember last week, and I repented of not studying? This week, I actually did study for my test, but I'm still feeling a rising anxiety, and I'm anxious about my anxiety because if my anxiety stays at this level, I won't even be able to focus on what I did study and do well on the test. Could you help me with my anxiety and to remember what I learned on the test? That's how we pray through our predicament. Let's say you're in the workforce. You could ask for God to reassure you because there's nothing too difficult for God with your coming project. In our jobs, we often focus on our own actions instead of the role of prayer. Or if you're retired, you know something about remorse. 
Could you take that to God in prayer and your predicament, the predicament of your sinful nature overtaking you and seeing everything through the eyes of remorse? You have time to look back. You have second thoughts like Jeremiah had second thoughts. Even though he had direct instruction from God to purchase the field, he still had second thoughts. You followed God through your whole career and now you have second thoughts. It just happens. But God gives us this blessing. Think of Jeremiah, just bought a field. And yet it seems he needs reassurance of prayer. So it's no surprise that we need reassurances from time to time. Mistakes get made. Sins get committed. We mess things up. What do we do then? We take our mess selves and the predicament that, that we've contributed to making and the predicament that others have contributed to making And we take the whole mess to God in prayer. And we say, God, mess. God, mess. I don't even know I have a verb. I don't know what I'm asking. I'm asking for the impossible and I don't know how to describe that. Jeremiah knew the field would be used by God's people. So we pray for a future place in heaven to make us behave like citizens of heaven now. Hebrews 11.6, whoever wants to draw near to God must believe that God exists and that rewards those who seek him. As we present our predicaments to God, we believe that he exists. We believe that he has governed the entire universe and continues to do so. So that my predicament exists as part of his script for me. And I find some peace and comfort and hope in that. And it pushes me to pray that God would reward those who seek him like me. I literally don't know what to do here. Help. That's presenting your predicament to God. It's called prayer. How to pray when perplexed. Hope for the impossible and be confident to present yourself, your predicament, and your sins to God in prayer. Let's pray.